And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Before we start, there's strong language and mentions of sexual assault in this episode. If you're around kids or would rather not hear that, consider skipping this one. The Football Champions League semi-final in 2015 was a huge game. Barcelona versus Bayern Munich. Millions of fans were tuning in from around the world. In the stadium, the pitch was dry, the night was clear, and the seats were full. It was an evening game, 7.45 p.m. kickoff in Barcelona, and both teams were giving it their all. There were plenty of fouls and yellow cards during the first half, but 45 minutes in, still 0-0. Barcelona fans were depending on their team's leader, Lionel Messi, to get the team to the semifinals. One person hoping for Messi to make a move was a teenager sitting in Kabul, Afghanistan. It was midnight his time, and he was watching in secret on his family TV in the kitchen. Oh, I used to say Leonardo. I couldn't say Lionel Messi, I was Leonardo Messi. He called him Leonardo? Yeah. I don't know his real name, and my parents never allowed me to watch football. They hate football, any sport, not just football, any sport. When they all fall asleep, I just go and take the TV. Take it, my room. And then when they find out in the morning, they just start shouting, Why oh, did this again? I don't know. I just did. I know it's weird, but when I watch football, like I feel kind of itchiness in my legs. Like, because I just want to go and join and play. And it's just a feelings, you know, like, you just enjoy. Sometimes I get emotional for football, like, I, I want to play. It was nil-nil in Messi's school. I start shouting. I was so happy. My dad came out, like, what's going on? I'm like, nothing, nothing. Second goal, Messi's goal. More shouting. My dad comes like, why are you shouting? What happened? I was like, it's a mouse there. I couldn't say anything else. <laughs> but he, I think he knew that. That's the reason. That's why like so happy. This was Messi's 77th goal in the Champions League, making him the all-time highest scoring player in the competition. And in Afghanistan, Messi was this kid's hero. You know, like, people, when they pray, they're like, oh, I want to go to Jahannam. Uh, <laughs> I want to go to <laughs> Jannah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, like, I want to go to Jannah. I want to do this. I want to do that. Uh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. I w- all the time, just one thing. I want to be a footballer. All the time, when I pray and I just do this, dua, I want to be a footballer. And every time, like, when I was going to sleep, and I'm, like, thinking... Oh, I'm going to play football in a professional team. And they give me the first game in the last minute. And I'm going, I'm scoring a free kick, I'm giving a pass. It was just dreams, make it all the time, I don't know why. When I play football, I forgot everything. Like, I'm not in this world, I'm somewhere else. Like, I don't care about anything else. Like, the only thing 
that I think about is my game that I want to win and I want to score. That's the only thing. Like, I forgot that I have family. <laughs> I forgot that I'm in which country. I forgot where I'm going or what's going to happen to me. And sometimes I say football is the only thing that makes me happy. Four years after that game, which Barcelona won, by the way, this young football, soccer obsessed kid had a dream to be the next Lionel Messi. But his reality would be so completely distant from that dream. He'd be hundreds of miles from the comfort of that television in the corner of his parents' kitchen, making his way through the dangerous smugglers' network that flows from Afghanistan to Europe. We're going to try something new with this series. Over the next four episodes, we'll be following Aizen's journey from a Kabul prison complex, through snowy mountain passages in Iran, to dingy detention centers in Europe. This is part one. I hate Wednesdays. This story comes to us from producer Al Shaibani. Hi, this is Al. I'd like to introduce you to someone very close to my heart. We met two years ago, and since then, he's become like family to me. But we'll get into how we met later on. In the time I've known him, he would say things that would puzzle me, like, I hate Wednesdays, or I am the most unlucky person in the world. From these, I would gather bits and pieces of his past. Some of them would make me laugh, and some of them would fill me with despair. Sometime around eight months ago, we started to sit down with a microphone to record his story in part for this podcast, but also to share it with him before he forgets the details. I'm going to keep his name anonymous to protect his identity. So instead, we'll use a pseudonym. Like a fake name? Yeah, fake name. Okay. Eisen. Eisen. Yeah. Okay, Eisen. It's an anime name, but also people, I think people use it. Who's the Eisen anime character? He is... Actually, a villain. <laughs> okay. But he have good IQ. Okay, so you like him because he has good IQ. Yeah. Okay. He's mastermind. His planning is good. So. Like a lot of teenagers, Aizen is obsessed with anime. In fact, when we were sitting down to record this, he was wearing a T-shirt with another one of his favorite anime characters. Aizen was born in Kunduz in northern Afghanistan, but a few years later, his family moved to the capital, Kabul specifically to a neighborhood called Yakatut. But the school was like so far, like it was around one and a half hour walking, but I was a kid. Now when I remember sometimes, you know, like when I get a bit older and I see, I was like, how I walk this all way? When you're a kid, you walk so slowly, kicking everything in the crowd, just go walk. Aizen doesn't come from a wealthy family. His dad, who was already in his late 60s, is a taxi driver, and work was never consistent. That's also why the family didn't live in central Kabul. As a kid, Aizen remembers a lot of fields in the area he grew up in, fields where he would go and look for farming work. My father's car was broke, so he was f- making his car, and we don't have anything for two days. So he was fixing his car and was nothing to eat. And my mother was pregnant. You know, I had always the feeling to work and find money, but I was not able to do a lot of things. So... So you're harvesting... Yeah. You told, I told... Oh, we call it gandana. I don't know what you call it. Gandana. It looks like spring onion, but it's not spring onion. Yeah, chives. 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 
He pulled out his phone and opened up Google Maps to show me satellite images of the area. Beige square houses and big green fields. You see this parking? It was our school. Okay. It was like a, no rooms, nothing, just small tents. You know this? We live in here. On the first, when we arrived, was no place. There was all grounds like this. This mm. is chiefs, 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 chiefs. All of this. Muli mm. Surkhak, I told you, Radish. Okay. I work for three, four, or like at least five hours. And they give me three things of this. Chiefs, chiefs. Yeah, chiefs. Chiefs. For that work, he got paid 20 Afghanis. That's the local currency, which he used to buy two pieces of bread. He took those back to his mom with the chives so she can prepare dinner. When his dad came home and saw this, he started crying. I always don't care about myself. Like, I just care about my family. No, I don't care about mom and dad as well. Just my sisters and brother. Because yeah. I know that my mom and dad didn't give me the life that I wanted. Mm-hmm. But I always say Alhamdulillah. But I want him, them to have a good life. Mm-hmm. I never did homework. I'm saying, I'm being honest. I never did homework. Okay. I don't like doing it. Like writing, reading. It was not something for me. In the class, only thing I was waiting for all the time was the sports lesson that we can go and play football. Of course. <laughs> that was life in Kabul. Going to school, hating homework, playing football at every opportunity. Eisen has four siblings three younger sisters, and one younger brother. He's the eldest. And as for his parents, he told me they were very strict. His dad was very religious, and his mom was angry all the time. His school friends were scared of her. There's something else you should know about Aizen. The way he looks is unlike any Afghan I've ever met. He's about my height, six feet, with freckled white skin, green-gray eyes, and strawberry blonde hair. When he speaks or smiles, he beams a wide string of pearly teeth. But otherwise, he looks very stern. His piercing eyes are intimidating. He's a little lanky and a lot good-looking. All that to say, he looks different, which is a blessing and a curse for Aizen. He remembers an incident back in Kabul when he was walking home from school. The car of UNICEF with some soldiers, they stop in front of me. I was like, shocked. what's going on? They come and like, what are you doing in the state? But I was not able to speak and I was like, eh? I didn't understand. Then they called the translator. The translator come, they, they translate me. What are you doing here? I said, what am I doing? I'm going home. I just finished my class. They, were, they asked me that where I'm from. I was like, I'm from here. The American soldier then patted him on the head and told him, Take care. We don't want anyone to attack you because you look like us. <laughs> and I was like, okay, thank you. And also, when I was a kid, uh, like, so, like so small, like two years old, three years old, I was with my mom, uncle, the Americans, and stopped him and said that you're still, you're still some American child who used to steal it from me, who is this child? He was like, no, it's my own nephew. Yeah, and they were like, no, no. But then they ask a lot and stuff. They say, okay, okay. I'm a, I was a weird-looking child in Afghanistan. <laughs> Friends in Kabul used to call him El Rusi, which means the Russian, because of the way he looks. 
No one else in his family is blonde or has such fair features. For a kid in Afghanistan around this time, 2016, 2017, 2018, life in Kabul meant growing up around violence. Kabul is still reeling from shock a day after a suicide bomb attack killed more than 100 people and wounded at least 235. After a bomb exploded inside a mosque in Kabul. At least 21 people are dead. Dozens more on a peaceful protest. We now know that more than 60 people were killed and more than 200 wounded. The terror group's media wing says that two fighters basically detonated their suicide belts at a Shiite gathering. So... Basically, Qala'ili Mardan, we live in Qala'ili Mardan. It was attack always in here, mm-hmm. always, like every time. People die, a lot of people die, a lot, but nobody cares, nobody. One, I remember all of them like clearly, once a huge explosion that a lot of people died, happened when I was 11, 12, something. In, I was going to study Quran in a far place, like I walk around one and a half hour, walk, 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 to go to the... It was a lady who teaching us, we pay for her and she teaches. us. In a madrasa or in no, her house? No, she was teaching in her house. She was Qari, she was so good in teaching. I was coming from, we go early morning and I come back, and the explosion happened. Boom! It was, like, it was so close to me. I didn't see from which side it happened. But there was, the sun was so close, like this, it was shaking everything. And I was not able to go to Madrasa for a week. I was like, I don't want to go, but yeah. my mother forced me, go. But I was scared. Explosion is like happening once a week. Yeah. Sometimes in one day, three, four times. So yeah, like I see like this stuff a lot. Like a lot. You hear it and you also see it. Yeah. Yeah. It happened one day near our car. New to your car? Yeah, I, our car get damaged, this shoes, bros, but you're in the lab. Your father's car? Yeah, but nobody get hurt. We're all family in the car. Oof. It was so close, like, <laughs> so, so close. Eisen eventually finished school and actually graduated high school at 15. He was always top of his class, so he skipped some academic years. At first, the exam board refused to give him his high school diploma because he was too young. But after a lot of back and forth and some money, he got it and started working. A distant relative offered him a job at their travel agency, running errands. He told me to drive the car. Oh, you can know you have to drive. And I was only 15. I started driving the car for him. To do what? Do stuff, buy stuff for his home, take his children to a school. Sometimes I had like kind of $10,000 in my bag from this company. Always I was shaking. If I lose this money, I'm done. Yeah. I didn't lose the money. I lost the car. <laughs> One day I took the family to a wedding party. I remembered that I need to do some job. I took the car and I went to do the job. And it was Independence Day of Afghanistan. So the street was closed. I turned back and my friend called me. He said, oh, let's go to eat something and go take a shower and come back. We have like hammams. I was like, yeah. okay. I take the car, we go eat. We, we went, after eating, we went to take shower. I parked the car. I say to the person, look at the car. Because we know that people steal cars. And I said, look at the car. I'm coming back in five minutes. I spent four minutes and my heart was like, I need to go and check. 
I didn't even draw myself with the towel and stuff. I just checked the car first. No car. I was shaking. I lost a car which worth twelve thousand dollars. This car, a 2006 Toyota Corolla, which belonged to the company he was working for, was gone. Eisen called the police to file a report, thinking they would find it. The police called me and said, come to the <laughs> police station. I went to the police station with my own feet. So, okay, they complain that you steal the car in second crime, illegally driving. <laughs> Even though he was only 15, no one had stopped him while he was driving around Kabul. He said no one thought to question his age because he had a beard at the time. A soft one, but a beard nonetheless. Now the car he was driving was co-owned by two people, Eisen's boss and another guy. In this case, the other guy filed a complaint against Eisen and accused him of stealing the car. Yeah, I spent six hours in the station. They make everything like they say, okay, everything is clear, done, take it. They take me in the car, so I went to the children prison a really weird place. It's dirty. You don't have access at all. You don't have you don't have access to phone. You don't have anything. They give you food two times a day. It's just totally rubbish. So, you know, I was scared, but I see the guys who were similar to my age. Some of them were older, but they pretend to be younger. But in Afghanistan, you know, nobody cares actually for these things. I asked Aizen what kind of crimes these kids were being held for. He said some of them were caught selling drugs. Others were accused of being suicide bombers. He mentioned how many of them were from the countryside, children that have no education and were charged for being terrorists, either because they simply had a long beard or because a phone call to someone in the Taliban was traced back to their phone. I spent seven days. They took me to, to the doctor to check my age. And I had my document, like my taskara, that say that I'm 15. Yeah. Like I was turning 16 in a few months. Nobody, they actually totally say that, no, we don't believe in this, in his ID. And the tip, uh, that we call it Tibatli, the place they check the age, they say he's 18. They just, you know how what they check? The doctor, they check your penis. Okay. They just look to your penis. They take a picture of your hand and say, okay. And they send the results. And they take me from children prison to the older people prison. He found out later that it was the other owner of the car who paid off the officials to do this botched age test and claimed that he's actually 18. And so Eisen was transferred from juvenile detention to adult prison, all because of this accusation that he'd stolen his boss's car. I went there my first night. There's a lot of people who drug, do drugs and stuff, and also some people who are kind of, petrif- what do you call it? Petrophil, pedophile. Yeah, who want to do sex always with kids. Mm. Or, you know, in Afghanistan, we have the kid, kid thing of Bachabazi, who want young boys to stay with them and dance for them. Bachabazi. It's a Persian phrase that literally translates to boy play. And it refers to this custom where older men would have young boys dance for them, usually dressed up and with makeup on, and would often sexually abuse them too. It's another name for sexual slavery or pedophilia. I was scared. Like, it was my first time in a place like this. So I went and arrived. One said, come to my room. Another said, come to my room. This room was huge. 55, 56 sleep near to each other. Okay. And it was different ages, different... Different ages. 45, 56, 80, 20, 19. But 
all upper than it. I was the only kid in this place. We have kind of boss in the prison, boss of prisoners. He saw me and he said, come with me. He, he, he asked me, how old are you? I was, I was like 16. He take me to the room and said, I said, you sleep here. I was like, okay. He was kind of nice guy. And then I meet another gun, one who was boss of him. He was from Iran. He killed two people in Iran because of a fight they had, like a kind of family fight. He was huge. Muscles, tattoos. Ooh, I was scared. Yeah, he had like a really weird tattoos in his body. All of his body was with tattoos. He was like actual criminal. Yeah, he looks like actual criminal. Actual criminal. <laughs> like his muscles was bigger than my back. Okay, wow. And I was scared of him. He looked so scary, but he was so nice. Like this guy was so nice, and he had five, six phones that everybody come give him fifty Afghanis. Can I call? They give you a yeah, go call. You call to your family and you talk. Dumra panaz nas matamugo rajanana ma ba main kare taba dinoro panasipshi. Dumra panaz nas matamugo rajanana. When I was in prison, I start writing poetry, poetry. What do you call it? Poetry. Yeah, I was so good. Like my mind work and I write everything. Pashto and Dari poetry. When I asked him what kind of things he was writing poetry about, he said, I don't know. Just normal things like friendship, love, Farhad, the character from Farsi folklore. He was sad and remembered the poetry he learned in school from poets like Hafez and Nizami. So he said, okay, what are you writing every time I see you? And I was like, I'm writing this. He said, read for me. Because he was the boss, and you cannot say no to him. I read, he was like, oh, you're good. I was like, yeah, you can write and read. I was like, yeah, I finished school. <laughs> and then the guy called me and said, come here. You can speak, or you can write, read. I give you these five phones, all the phones. Everybody come, take 50 Afghanis, write how many people you did. And at the end of the day, I will take money from you. And okay. if you want to call, you can call your family every time you want. So basically... Eisen was working as a phone operator in the prison. He would coordinate who was using which phone for how long and then collect money from them. There was a lot of people who like kids and stuff. I was so scared. Like I spent 20 days, but I was scared. But I was also kind of have someone that protect me, mm -hmm. the boss. He loves me a lot. He was like, I don't know, kind of so good with me. Eisen needed this protection. The older men who were into Bachabazi had their eyes on him, especially because he looked different. Eisen's family came to visit a few times while he was in there. They brought him food, they brought him a bit of money, hoping his case would get resolved soon. But that prison was just a holding place. After 10 days, if his case wasn't resolved, he'd be transferred to a more permanent facility. In first time they were tra transferring from this place to the huge prison of Afghanistan that they call it Pulicharhi, okay. which is there. The main prison? Yeah. Where is it? It's in Kabul. This guy that I was working for, he went to the main person, the, the police, he said, I will give you 5,000 Afghanis. Don't transfer him this week as well. Keep him. Keep him. He said, I already skipped one week. No, I cannot again. One mm -hmm. time I skipped, just we need to send him. And then this guy called his friend, who is in the main prison. He's also a prisoner, but he was Afghani. And said to him that this guy is coming. His name is this. You need to take care of him. 
So after 20 days in jail, Aizen was transferred to Pulicharchi prison, just outside Kabul. Tonight, we want to take you inside a place you've never seen before. It's been described as a breeding ground for insurgents. The Taliban call it a recruitment center. Pulicharchi has seen riots, and jailbreaks and political executions. But not long ago, the Taliban ran its own madrasa school here and completely controlled a prison wing so that guards had to leave food at the door. Polisharki holds prisoners accused of all crimes, drug trafficking, theft, murder, as well as armed resistance. But those accused of fighting the Afghan government told us that they'd rather be in Guantanamo than here. Pulicharchi is the largest prison in Afghanistan. From above, it looks like a wheel, a circle of building blocks with eight spokes. Each one is a massive cell block. I've seen pictures and videos of what this prison looks like on the inside, and it's one of the most grim places you can imagine. Dirty floors, dirty walls, clothes, shoes, rubbish are littered everywhere. The official capacity at Pulicharchi is 5,000. But estimates put the actual number of prisoners there at twice that number, 10,000. Inmates are cramped into rusty, smelly, squalid cells. It's freezing cold in the winter and sweltering hot in the summer. This concrete hell was built in the 70s and was used as a Soviet prison in the 80s. In 2008, when the Americans took over, they spent $18 million on renovating it before they pulled the plug because they saw it was beyond repair. Still, the Americans transferred 250 prisoners from Guantanamo Bay to Pulicharchi. Escaping from here is impossible. Impossible at all. Okay. From the main door, from the first door, take the prisoners, it's one hour in the car. Okay. Totally impossible to escape. It's huge. It's huge. What did you see happen there? A lot of things. Fighting, people trying to suicide. Okay. People complained, oh, this guy tried to rape me. A lot of things happened in there. Some people tried to rape other guys and they complained and they're fighting and stuff. I got beaten in a fight that I don't know that the fight will happen. The attack, the fight happened between Pashtun people and Farsi people. They said that they were trying to rape a guy. Okay from Farsi okay. and they fight. Cause I was sleeping with, I was Pashtun. Yeah. But cause I was speak both language. I was. In the Farsi side? Yeah. They just beat me with that reason. 16 years old in Pulicharchi, charged and treated as an adult for a crime he didn't commit. Eisen described how when he first got there, he was put in a room with people he recognized from the previous prison. But they were into Bajapazi, so he was scared to sleep at night, worried that someone would assault him. Not to mention tensions between the two ethnic groups, the Pashtun side and the Farsi side. He also described how there'd be no water for days, no access to a shower, rats and mice everywhere, and an unbearable stench. What helped is that someone knew he was coming, the boss from the previous jail, the guy with all the tattoos, had called and told them to look out for this blonde kid. His name was Wahid. Wahid? Yeah, he okay. was a really nice guy. He said, you stay with me, everybody look at you. 
It's not good to say, but when I get attacked, I had a small knife because the guy Wahid, he told me, keep this. It will happen. Yeah. I know you nobody will you don't have problem but they have problem. Okay. So when this attack start they beat me a lot like I get beat and I was not planning to use. So I didn't kick someone but I was putting in the clothes and making the what do you call it like if, tearing the clothes? Yeah. Like cutting uh, yeah cutting the clothes that was the only thing. So the fight finish they use the spray the paper spray Ooh, yeah so bad. And the police come check encountering the people that they saw they're fighting. Take a lot of boys. They call it Kota Kulfi, which is a small room that you cannot turn, you cannot sit. You need to just stand okay. for 24 hours. When I asked Aizen to read me some of the poetry he wrote, a photo fell out of his notebook from prison. This picture was taken at Policharchi. I know this sounds unusual, but one of the prisoners had hired a photographer to come in and take a portrait of him and Eisen together. There's a date stamped in the corner, 10th of October, 2017. You can see a concrete room with nothing but dirt on the walls. There are no windows and the lighting is bad. In center frame, Eisen stands next to this other prisoner. Both are wearing traditional Afghan clothes. They're standing a few feet apart and looking directly at the camera. Neither one is smiling. Aizen's stare is charged with terror and fatigue. It's a haunting image. I had a court, like judgment in the court. I went one time, they take my name, everything, they say, okay, come next time. We will decide. They listen to my case and everything and decide that no, you didn't do anything. You drive illegally, but you spend three months is a long time for this. So yeah, you're free, you can go. The coach decided to make me free at Wednesday, but Everything was closed in Wednesday. Thursday off, Friday off, Saturday something, one office was off. Sunday I get free. Spend four or five nights without reason. That's why I'm saying I don't like Wednesdays. When we come back, after three months in jail, Eisen tries to readjust to life on the outside. Once Eisen was out of prison, things weren't easy. He had missed his entrance exams for university, and when he eventually retook them, he didn't do so well. On top of that, he now had a criminal record, which meant he couldn't find any decent work. He tried to clear this record, but he would have had to pay the officials a bribe to do that, money that he didn't have. You know, like, it's just something, when you're in the prison, you think, I'm forever in here. Like, you don't have anything else to talk, think about. I was just praying. So when I come out, I had a beard. <laughs> Long beard? Long beard. Okay. And I had white clothes and I come out. I was totally a different person. For the time that I come out of the prison, I don't think I had relationship with my parents because I was like kind of... As they say, they lost their honor because their son go to jail. They always think, because of you, people talking about you, it hurt us. I was like, but I haven't done anything wrong. I just lost the car, but I called the police. People are saying, oh, he was traveling with the girls in the car. That's why he lost the car. I was like, I haven't done anything. Basically, the relationship with my parents was, it was not good from the beginning, but they just totally get destroyed. Every day, sitting, time to eat. They start, dum 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 dum. you don't work, you don't do this. 
With someone on your side? <laughs> no. Sisters, brothers? No, my sister and brother, they were all young. They cannot say anything in front of... You know, like, Middle Eastern parents, you cannot say anything in front of your parents. Even if you're 35, still for them, you're 10 years old. A prickly relationship with his parents, the cruelty of being locked up without committing a crime, the shame of going to jail. It was becoming unbearable. His family blamed him for ruining their honor, for losing his job, for not bringing in any money. Then one day my cousin told me, he said, if I pay for your travel to go to Europe, will you go? I was like, 100%. I'm not going to say no. So one day, like, they told me just like, my, I think my cousin just told me like, fun. Do you want to go? I was like, yeah, I want to go. I don't want to stay anymore. In February 2019, Eisen decided he was going to leave Afghanistan. His cousin, who works in Saudi Arabia, was offering to pay for his journey to Europe. But this wasn't a plane ticket or a visa fee or a bus pass. For Eisen, the only way out of Afghanistan would be through a labyrinth of smuggler networks and illegal border crossings. I, first, I was thinking it was a fun, because I, I thought they were not going to send me. They just say, because it's a lot of money to spend on someone to go. Then one day my cousin called me, go buy some stuff for yourself. I was like, okay. I was so like, quick. My dad took me his, in his car to this place. I call it company. From company, you take the buses to Nimroz. It's 12 hours away to Nimroz. I say goodbye to my dad. I'm like, yeah, goodbye. My dad told me, I remember this. He said goodbye and he went. He come back after one hour and he told me, if you don't want to go, turn back now. I don't know why he said it. He said like, I'm not telling you to go. If you don't want to go, turn back. I know they said a lot of things, but still like, I think my dad loved me more than my mom. Next time on Kerning Cultures, Aizen says goodbye to Afghanistan. I calculate all of the things, like 10 days in here, 10 days in here, this, this. So my plan was three months in France. I was like, in three months I will be in France. Was it something that you're scared of? Not really. I mean, I see, I've seen a lot of things in Afghanistan, so was, the only thing like people were scared of, oh, I will kind of die. I had like huge experience with this as well. I was like, Today, tomorrow, one day. So who like who cares if even if I die? This episode was produced by Ad Shaibani and edited by Alex Atak and me, Dana Balut. Fact checking was by Iman Sharif and Dina Sabri, and sound design was by Munzir Al Hashim and Paul Alouf. Our team also includes Zena Duidad, Nadine Shakir, and Finbar Anderson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Take care. <laughs>